Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 29th, 2015, and my guest is Alvin Roth, Nobel Laureate and the Craig and Susan McCaw Professor of Economics at Stanford University. He is the author of Who Gets What and Why. Alvin, welcome to EconTalk. Thank you. Now, early in your book, you give some examples of markets that struggle to reach the outcome that we might hope they achieve, uh, often because they don't use prices to clear the market. There may be legal restrictions, but sometimes uh, there are inherent aspects of the market, uh, what you call thinness or other problems. What are some of the examples of markets that you've studied, and uh, what are their problems? Well, let me start by, by mentioning that a lot of the markets that I study are matching markets in which prices alone don't clear the market, but um, but there are other institutions to help clear it. So labor markets are like these, and they're among the markets that I've, I've studied. And in labor markets, as in other matching markets, you can't just choose what you want. You also have to be chosen. So labor markets have all these other institutions about applications and interviews and offers and acceptances. And sometimes those are used for competitive purposes in various ways. So, for example, right now, if you knew someone who was just graduating this month from uh, a prestigious law school and was going to take his first job as a clerk for an appellate judge, there's a good chance he would have gotten that job two years ago when he was a beginning second-year law student. And he would have gotten that job with an exploding offer that meant that he had to say yes or no when the offer came before he could find out what other offers might be coming. A very short deadline to, uh, very, to respond. Very short deadline. That's the exploding part. It's going to disappear. Exactly. And, and so that's a market that doesn't work the way we normally think a well-functioning market would work, where you can consider lots of alternatives. So, but, but it's one of the ways that judges compete with each other. And that's a market in which the judges can't compete on price because Congress sets the <laughs> wage for clerks. But it turns out that other markets work that way, too, when private equity firms are trying to hire um, young investment bankers, they do the very same thing. When law firms, which can pay salaries very freely, try to hire new associates, they do the same thing, often with competition through summer associateships while people are in law school, so that new lawyers in general will often, as they go to their jobs after finishing three years of law school, have been committed to those jobs for years. And the challenge here is uh, it's a congestion problem that's due to the, I don't know whether you want to call it natural or unnatural, the, the nature of education. Everybody's hitting the market at the same time. So one problem with congested markets is that is that it might be hard to deal with all the transactions that you have to consider when they all come on the market at the same time. And that's one of the things that, um, for instance, the clearinghouse for new doctors tries to address. That's a market that went through problems being thick, problems with, with people not being able to consider many offers simultaneously. And then it went through problems with congestion. And today, new doctors get their offers through a computerized clearinghouse that allows them to decide in advance, once they've learned all about the jobs, the wages, and the conditions, which ones they would like 
first, second, third, and then it, it automates the process of offers and rejections so that, that the preferences of doctors over all the jobs and of employers over all the doctors are taken into account. And another example, which I hope we'll get to, would be uh, school choice, the assigning of students to a, a grade school, a kindergarten, a high school, et cetera, in, say, New York or Boston, two markets you've, you've been involved in. Right. So that's a market where we don't allow prices to do any work at all. When, when we're giving out places in public schools, we want them all to be free, and we don't want wealthier well, speak parents. Speak yourself. But yeah, okay. Yeah, okay. But okay. It, that's the way it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, society, we organize schools so that... Um, you can't pay to get your child into a better kindergarten, or you can't easily pay. Although, of course, there's a whole private school market operating alongside the public school market. But it works in a somewhat similar way. It has the same challenges in that uh, it starts all, they all start around the same time, right? And they don't use price exactly to allocate. Uh, they don't sell their spots to the highest bidder. They right. have other goals besides maximizing revenue. Absolutely. And, and in general, matching markets don't use price to equate supply and demand. So Google doesn't hire workers by lowering the wage until just enough engineers want to work at Google. Google has a very desirable job. Lots of people would like to have it, but you can't just choose it if you like the wage. You have to be hired. And as I like to point out, that's true of the NBA also, uh, for those of us who have other certain other deficiencies, besides that being, say, good software engineers who can't work for Google. Some of us aren't tall enough, athletic enough to work for the Boston Celtics. Right. So that, that's... But, but but, but that is a different kind of, of problem. The market might clear without me working for the Boston Celtics. But it, it, it does, <laughs> more or less. But, but think, about, Lots of think about universities. Stanford doesn't set tuition so that supply equals demand. It's, ex it's expensive to go to Stanford, but a lot of people would like to come at the current tuition. And so there are all these other market-clearing institutions, applications and admissions. And so Stanford, college admissions is a matching market. Money is important. Prices play a role. But you can't just choose what you want, even if you can afford it. So one of the things I struggle with when I was reading your book and thinking about your work is that this issue is pervasive in the sense that quality matters besides price in any market. So talk about how, when I was raised uh, as, a, as an economist, I was... The approach that tried to deal with this was hedonics, uh, Sherwin Rosen's work, trying to figure out how do we deal with competition when price isn't the only thing that matters. We also care about quality. Is that all that we're talking about here? Is there something subtler going on besides the fact that that there's a certain minimum quality to get into to Stanford? It's because they really don't just care about that. Even that's not it's not just well they don't just care about the money. They care about quality. They care about something other than money and quality. It's a subtler thing going on with the matching. So talk about that. Well, in matching markets, you care who you're matched with. Yeah. And um, there, there's something impersonal about buying things in a commodity market. When you go on the New York Stock Exchange to buy shares in some company, you don't care who you're buying them from. You don't worry that whether they took good care of those shares. And they don't worry whether you'll take good care of them. But when you admit someone to your college, you're, you're building a class. You, you are thinking of that individual as a person. When you hire someone, you're hiring an individual. And if the offer you make to hire someone is rejected, then you have to find someone else to make the offer to. The offers are made personally, not to the market, not to the whole market. And I guess the other way to think about it is that quality here is so multidimensional, it's not really meaningful to talk about it as a, maybe if it's a dimensional problem. Problem. We don't just say, well, that you've got to get to a certain score on these 10 attributes. There's 
uh, I guess the way I think about it is the marriage market. You don't just say, well, I want my spouse to have these characteristics, X, Y, and Z, and as soon as it gets below, above a 17, it'll be fine. There's that's, something subtler going exactly on there. That's exactly right. I'm, I'm glad to, you know, <laughs> this, this changes my priors on whether you're happily married. Um, you can't just choose your spouse. You also have to be chosen, and you choose an individual, and it's hard to, to turn that into a commodity. Incidentally, it's hard to turn commodities into commodities. You know, the, the way I talk about it in the book, I say God made wheat, but the Chicago Board of Trade made number two hard red winter wheat. And number two hard red winter wheat is a commodity sufficiently specified that you no longer need to know who you're buying it from. And of course, I really enjoyed that part of the book, by the way. Of course, even though there's some gray areas where, you know, I, I find, find it fascinating that, that people in general want to when they sell their house, they want to sell, in that case, they just want to sell for the most money. They care about whether the loan's going to go through to the buyer. Uh, they might care about uh, the speed with which they sell the house, obviously. But eh, once the house is sold, they're going to sell, to, once the house is on the market, they sell to the highest bidder once those other attributes are taken care of. But, and yet, emotionally, some people don't like the idea of certain kind of people living in their house who might not take care of it, who might not, it's just, it, we have emotional baggage with lots of transactions uh, once we get past wheat, it seems to me. Well, that may be one of the reasons for the persistence of realtors as intermediaries, Correct. which which I think is actually a little hard to explain. But um, but that's right. You might you might not like to know that the person who's buying your house looked at your kitchen and, and <laughs> said to her spouse, well, this will have to go yeah, after you carefully chose exactly. all the, the countertops. No, I think there's no doubt about it that when you do a, especially an innovation in your house, some kind of renovation or addition, you, you're reassured that the person's going to take care of it. There's some kind of aesthetic there and art to the house redo, redoing that you care about, just the way it is. Well, and you might sell for not the most money if the if the person who offered the most money was was planning to to scrape the house and yeah. build an entirely different house Correct. compared to someone who was offering almost as much money but who loved your house and thought that the the yellow walls in the living room were perfect. <laughs> and of course at some price that becomes untenable and you'll sell it anyway to someone who's gonna tear it down. But yeah. Um, so let's talk I wanna take uh, you know you've done a wide range of work and much of it's in the book. I want to take a couple of examples uh, and contrast uh, the problems that are involved and also the, the market design that, that you use to, to deal with those problems. So I'm going to start, we're going to start with kidneys, and then we're going to look at, uh, which is a matching problem of one kind, then move on to a different kind of matching problem, which is the problem with um, uh, assigning students to schools in, say, a, a public school system. So let's start with kidneys. Uh, this is a rather... Uh, I found it quite moving, actually, because there are very few times when an economist, first of all, there are very few times when economist work makes any difference in the real world, to start with. For it to make a difference in the real world and save a life is really, it's, it's one thing, I, you know, I give Jillian Simon a lot of credit. He improved the allocation of, of airplane seats by letting people, by allowing people to over, airlines to overbook and then uh, having people volunteer to give up their seats. And uh, that, was, that was efficient and good for everybody more or less, but this is better. So in your, uh, your research has helped save people's lives and transform their lives. So let's talk about the basic problem with uh, kidney matching and some of the different stages that, that the uh, market design went through to cope with that. Okay, well, 
uh, end-stage renal disease. Kidney failure is a deadly disease, but you can be kept a while for, for some years on kidney dialysis. However, the, the best cure, the treatment of choice, is transplantation. And right now, we have 100,000 people on the waiting list for deceased donor kidneys in the United States. So one way to get a, a kidney transplant is from someone who's died uh, while on a ventilator and who wished to make a donation, and, um, and their kidney can save your life. But we only do about 11,000 of those transplants a year because that's all the, the viable kidneys that we recover. And in that case, uh, there's a waiting list, uh, and they just go down the list until they find... If, if when a person dies on that ventilator, they go down the list until they find a medical match? Yes. Uh, with with some more complications. The, the lists are regional, so the, they're differently long in different parts of the country. Um, and there are some priorities uh, for children, for example. They're, they have, they're higher on the waiting list than, than people who've been waiting the same amount of time for adults. There are some other priorities as well. But there are only 11,000 deceased donor kidneys available for transplantation in the United States. So the waiting list is very long, and people die while waiting. Thousands of people die each year while waiting. There's another way to get a kidney transplant, and that's because healthy people have two kidneys and can remain healthy with one. And so if you are healthy enough to donate a kidney, you could save the life of someone you loved who needed a kidney by giving them one of yours. But sometimes you are healthy enough to give a kidney, but you can't give a kidney to the person you love because your kidney isn't compatible with them. There are a bunch of medical criteria that go into making sure that your kidney will work in someone else's body. And if you're incompatible, then loosely speaking, you just can't give them a kidney. And what they used to do was send you home. They'd say, thank you very much. Your offer is a generous one. Now go home. But there are other incompatible patient donor pairs in the same situation. So you might want to give a kidney to someone you love, and I might want to give a kidney to someone I love, and neither of us can do that. But it might be that my, com my kidney is compatible with your patient, and your kidney would work for my patient. And so that opens up the possibility of exchange. Incidentally, this is a market in which we don't allow money to work at all. It's against the law to buy and sell kidneys for transplant just about everywhere in the world, except the Islamic Republic of Iran, where there's a legal cash market for kidneys. Yeah, you didn't, you, you didn't mention how their market's working. Has anybody studied that, by the way? There have been some studies of it. it it's not a, a happy market in the sense that a lot of the donor sellers who agree to be interviewed in studies ask for anonymity. So it's, it's, um, it's legal, but it hasn't become respectable. Interesting. Uh, so back to our world. Um, let's stick with the United States. What changed? Well, what did, what did it, someone it, come up with uh, so, to make it better? So there started to be some kidney exchanges, which were exchanges between incompatible patient donor pairs. Economists didn't invent this. But when the first one happened in the United States, it happened at the Rhode Island Hospital in New England. And over the next four or five years, there were, there were another four or five in the four, among the 14 transplant centers of New England. And what my economist colleagues and I did was start to think about how to organize this on a large scale. It's now a standard form of transplantation in the United States. 
And we thought about how to get it going, how to make the market thick first, so how to assemble databases of patient donor pairs with the information that you needed in order to see when exchanges were possible, how to arrange larger exchanges than just between two pairs, because sometimes that double coincidence of wants doesn't happen. The, the kidney that we need isn't the one you have, even though we have a kidney that you need. So, so you need a third pair. So you need a third pair, for example, and that eases finding that double coincidence. And then over time, we've, we've started to make great use of chains of transplants started by non-directed donors. Those turn out to be very useful because we don't have to do all the surgeries in a chain simultaneously, and that sometimes lets chains form that have... 30 or more transplants in them, which means when you take a photograph of all the people involved, there'll be 60 people in the photograph, 30 nephrectomies, 30 kidney removals, and 30 transplants, 30 kidney installation. So kidney exchange is now well accepted in the United States and is growing around the world. But I should say that although I could tell you about victory after victory, it's in a war that we're losing. Correct. The, there, are, there are more people waiting for kidneys today than there used to be. That's partly good news. Part of that good news has to do with the reduction in traffic fatalities, for instance. That right. was one source of deceased donors. Yeah. But it's partly bad news. There's an epidemic of diabetes that often leads to, the, to kidney failure. Right. Uh, we have 11,000 uh, deceased donor kidneys, and we pick up another six. From the chains, is it number seventeen? We pick up a number. We pick up six thousand additional living donor in the year donations year, in, in a year. Not not at all. All through kidney exchange, many of them are. You love someone and want Direct. to give them a kidney, and you can. And it works. Incidentally, the those numbers mean that we now have more living donors in the United States than we have deceased donors, even though we have. 11,000 deceased donor transplants and only 6,000 live donor transplants because deceased donors give two kidneys. Oh, good point. Mm -hmm. um, and you point out in the book that this, we started off, there was a simultaneity. This where I think the economics comes in rather directly. Uh, the original pairs were simultaneous. So all four people would be on the operating table roughly at the same time. Uh, a person would give, donate a kidney, they would race out to take that to the other pair. The other pair, one of those two would donate a kidney, and they would race that to bring it to the first person's uh, donee or person who needs a kidney. Uh, you talked about the unease with which hospitals uh, felt about non-simultaneous donations. What was the, there's an incentive problem there. What is it? Well, the, the National Organ Transplant Act, the law that says that you can't buy a kidney, actually says you can't give valuable consideration for a kidney. And one way to, to think about that is you can't write a contract for a kidney. Yeah. So there isn't a contract that's legally enforceable in the United States that says we, you know, one incompatible patient donor pair, we give you a kidney today and you give us a kidney tomorrow. And so the reason we do those exchanges simultaneously is if on day one, pair one donates a kidney to pair two, and on day two, pair two fails to reciprocate, pair one would be really harmed. They would have had a surgery that didn't help them, and they would no longer have a kidney to participate in future kidney exchanges. So to prevent that from ever happening, those pairwise exchanges are virtually always done simultaneously, which means that you need 
four operating rooms and four surgical teams to do the two nephrectomies and two transplants. So that limits how many transplants you can do. But we now have an increasing number of non-directed donors. And when you have a non-directed donor, the, you, can, you can do the transplants in a chain. It doesn't have to loop back to the non-directed donor because a non-directed donor is someone who wants to give a kidney without having a particular recipient in mind. So you can now organize a chain where the non-directed donor gives to some patient donor pair that the donor in that pair then gives to another pair and so forth. And as, as I said, those chains are sometimes very long. And the reason you can do those non-simultaneously, which is what allows the chains to be long, so you can solve the logistical problem of many simultaneous surgeries, the reason those, those don't have to be done simultaneously is each pair gets a kidney before they give one. So if a chain is broken, it's disappointing, but it's not a tragedy for, for the people who didn't get the scheduled kidney because they still have a kidney. They can participate in kidney different exchange. Kidney, different, yeah. Yes, in, in, in you know, the next week or whenever we do another kidney exchange, so maybe, maybe soon. And that, that cuts the cost of a broken link, which, allows us, which allowed us to explore the benefits of long chains. And the, this, this was actually something proposed by my economist colleagues and myself, along with some surgical colleagues, but the, the surgeon who first took the leap and did a non-simultaneous chain was Mike Reese, who, who heads an organization called uh, the Alliance for Paired Donation, which is one of the original organizations that, that organizes kidney exchange and that we helped uh, organize these kinds of chains. So you're right in the book. The part that, again, I found very moving is you, you were in the operating room or in the theater uh, for one of these early ones, or yeah, I, I think the one that um, that that I wrote about happened in 2007. So that's quite early. And what was that like? Well, I was. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm not a doctor. Uh, so well, you well, you have a PhD though. I like. I do indeed. <laughs> I'm not a medical doctor. Uh, well, not, not, I like to say my running joke is when people ask me if I'm a, I'm a doctor, I say yeah, but not the kind that helps people. But see, you actually are the, doc, the kind of PhD that helps people. So carry on. Yeah. Well, well, so medical <laughs> doctors draw appropriately a big distinction between MDs oh, and Oh, yes, PhDs. they do, no doubt. And, and in fact, when I visited the, this surgery, I was introduced by the surgeon to the nurse who was organizing the, the OR uh, as Dr. Roth. And then as the surgery went on, they were explaining to me in great detail what they were doing. And she came over to me and she said, Dr. Roth, she said, <laughs> Do you have a PhD? And I said, yes, I do. And she said, I could tell from the way they were talking to you that you're not an MD. And she changed the log, which when they had said Dr. Roth, she must have written Dr. Uh, MD. Yeah, uh, that's very funny. So I was a little concerned, actually, with how I would react to the OR. So I skipped breakfast, but that turned out not to be necessary because it was, it was really very interesting and not, not all that anatomical. My wife is a human factors engineer and, and watches a lot of surgeries, and she says it's a little bit like cooking. You know, they, they have their work field very narrowly defined, and they are working in it, and there's flesh, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like a person. Yeah, it's not as recognizable. It's, uh, yeah, so so the, the surgery I visited was in Cincinnati, Ohio, and um, the donors had traveled, so, so the living donor was right in the next OR to the person who was getting the transplant, and her patient and his donor were in Toledo, Ohio, where Mike Reese was. And 
in Cincinnati, where I was, Steve Woodle was the surgeon uh, I was accompanying. Um, they, they first anesthetized the patients and did the initial incisions. And then Steve got on his cell phone and said, we're ready in Cincinnati. Are you ready in Toledo? And the answer was yes, we're ready in Toledo. And then the, the surgeries went ahead. The kidney was removed, which is the point of no return, yes. and transplanted very quickly in this operating room that was just steps away. And at the same time, those things happened in Toledo, Ohio. How long does the surgery take, by the way, just a side note? Good question. I don't Roughly, know, the, I don't I know, know the answer to it, but what I did notice is that they, they started two clocks when they took out the kidney. And the first clock was, was, was stopped when the kidney came out of the ice bucket, when, when it was no longer on ice. And the second clock was stopped when uh, blood began to flow, when, when the kidney was oxygenated again in the mm -hmm. patient. And I think we're talking about less than an hour for the second clock, that, wow. but because because the kidney didn't travel. Nowadays, right. the kidneys more often travel, and so you have some hours of what's called cold ischemia time time on on ice. But apparently, that doesn't harm the operation of the kidney. It's oh, incredible. Um, now, <clears throat> there's one line in your book that I that I couldn't help but think about, uh, and you didn't expand on it, so I want you to expand on it here. Uh, you mentioned in passing that that some hospitals were uneasy with some of these arrangements. They were afraid they might lose some control that they currently have over their kidney donors. And when we move to a more national market, and as an economist, you know, we tend to think bigger markets are better, thicker, more choice, more ability to satisfy, improve things. Uh, but that there was some pushback from doctors and hospitals who correctly, for whatever it's worth, receive revenue from these processes. And I thought it was interesting, you, you didn't talk about it there, that we, many of us, I'm not one of them so much because I am an economist, maybe, or for whatever reason, many people are uncomfortable with the monetary aspect of, of this kind of transaction and want to get the money out of it, don't want it to have a monetary aspect. But we have no problem with paying the doctors, paying the hospital. They make enormous sums of money and they're very skilled. I think that's great. But it's interesting that our repugnance, which is something we're maybe talking about toward the end of the interview, our repugnance stops at the, I don't know, at the, at the side door of the person's, uh, where the incision is made. Outside of that, yeah, sure, get rich. Is that, do you find that interesting? So it is interesting, and, but, but that may not be the right way to look at it in order to diagnose these repugnant transactions, which are transactions that some people would like to make, but other people don't think they should be allowed to. So... It's possible that some people find it repugnant that surgeons get paid a lot of money, but I think most of us, as you say, would prefer to be operated on by surgeons who do that professionally rather than do it in their spare time after doing whatever they have to do to earn a living. I think that much of the repugnance about buying and selling kidneys comes from concern that somehow this will disadvantage poor and vulnerable donors. No doubt. And that... And that there may be aspects of monetary exchange in markets that, that can be coercive or exploitative. And it's those concerns that, that lead to laws um, against buying and selling kidneys, which, are, which, which incidentally are around the world. So as a social science phenomenon, this is something much more uniformly legislated against than other complicated transactions that people often feel uneasy about and that are illegal in some places, like commercial surrogacy, for example. For pregnancy. For, right. Yeah. So, I, I, 
I don't know. I, I, I think the model would be, though, not a doctor doing it as a side project. But we don't, we don't say, well, medicine's too important to be left to the profit motive. Well, some of it we do. But, but surgery, we say, well, we could say, you know, I don't want my surgeon to be in it for the money. So I'm going to cap surgeon salaries. It's going to be a profession. I'm going to cap them at $100,000 a year. That's plenty. And then the people who will come into it be the ones who care the most. Now, most people would say, well, yeah, I think I'd want the ones not just who care the most, but maybe are the most skilled. Or, you know, I, I, it's just interesting that we don't, we don't draw the line there. We, we draw it elsewhere. It is. So, so I think the question of what kinds of social support markets get is an important one that economists have, have understudied because markets require social support. So... Um, Letting, letting, well, we're, we're seeing something like this now with Uber and taxi services. We used to be content with municipal monopolies on taxi services that, that were enforced by local regulations, and now Uber has come into the market sort of trampling on those regulations. No yeah. and, uh, and, and is, however things end up in the steady state, has certainly forever changed the taxi market. Yeah. So... It'll be interesting to see how that plays out, but but we seem to tolerate Uber breaking the rules because there was something really unsatisfactory about the way the taxi market was well, organized. Well, some, some of us do. I, I just want to raise one other uh, issue with respect to the surgeons and the, the repugnance, which is in the case of um, college athletes, and here we are on the campus of Stanford University, which is a... Uh, dominant force in many college athletic competitions, also tries to maintain high standards in the, in the classroom, which makes it a little bit unusual. There's a handful of universities who at least pretend to do that. Uh, I don't know how widespread it is. Who knows? Uh, but a lot of people suggest that, that this college uh, athlete as an amateur is a sham, that college uh, athletes make a lot of money for the institutions and that they should be compensated. Maybe not all of them, maybe not all at the same rate. There's a lot of different discussions. But what I always find interesting is that the coaches are always against this. And you can hear them on sports talk radio. They'll say, uh, oh, that's a terrible thing. It would ruin the whole thing. But, of course, they're the beneficiaries because the competition spills over into their salaries. And so even though there is this repugnance on the part of I, – I certainly can see there's repugnance on the part of the – general public uh, of possibly a ki about a kidney market, which they may not fully understand all the ramifications of it, but emotionally it may trouble them. Doctors, uh, they maybe have some vested interest in seeing this persist. They, what, what are your thoughts on that? And, and more generally, you've had a lot of contact with great surgeons. Do they have any thoughts on this that are different than the general public? So I think that there's some merit to the idea that, that people like getting their raw materials for free. <laughs> and it, um, and it, it, it certainly doctors yeah, wouldn't be the only ones. Yeah. But but uh, but the surgeons I talk to, that's not at the front of their minds. It it possibly could could play a role in you know the views of some Even surgeons. Even in the past, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but often what doctors have in their in the front of their minds is the idea that they should do no harm. And what they're a bit worried about is that if the person they're operating on to remove a kidney, the healthy person sure. on whom they're doing a surgery, is not there for the right reasons, that they may somehow have been exploited. Now, this is a confused and confusing idea that economists have not yet 
come to grips with in a way that lets us discuss this intelligently with, you know, medical ethicists, say, because by and large, when you say to economists, can I, can I make someone worse off by offering them money, you think economists, our first reaction is no. You know, as long make, as it's uncoerced. Yeah, as long as it's uncoerced. But of course, as we start to think that people may not be perfectly rational, you could at least speculate that if you offer me a lot of money, I might do less due diligence than I otherwise would have uh, if I hadn't been dazzled by the sum you offered me, and that I might make a decision that, that I would not have made if I had had more time to think about it, even given the amount of money, but, but that I might somehow be rushed into it. So if we are going to think about markets for kidneys, we'll want to regulate them very carefully. We'll want to make sure that there's lots of informed consent and maybe a waiting period or, but I've, I've actually heard people uh, argue that we should uh, discourage the kind of donation you talked about originally uh, a few minutes ago, not originally, but a few minutes ago, the kind of donation where it's just open-ended that obviously that's a person who's got maybe some emotional trouble. They should be, they should receive counseling. I don't know. My first thought is that's a gloriously generous thing to do and we should encourage it, not, Slow it down, but it, yeah. obviously there are different well, opinions on that. Well, that's certainly a concern. And so if you were to present yourself as a, as a potential living kidney donor, whether for someone you loved or for, uh, as an undirected donor, you would go through a battery of tests, not merely physiological, but also right. uh, trying to, to ascertain both your mental health and your state of mind. Because one of the things they worry about is that you might be being coerced in some way by the don't by the recipient yeah, yeah. family dynamics you know if, yeah. if if your brother needs a kidney and your mom thinks you should give a kidney to your brother you might be coerced and sort of if coerced. you well <laughs> you you might not want to give the kidney and right. one of the things that goes on not not often mentioned but one of the things that goes on in the in the evaluation process of donors is if you were to say to the people evaluating you you know i really i never liked my brother you know used to beat me up uh, and I really don't want to give them a kidney, but, but it would be a terrible breach with my mom if I didn't. They will report that your kidney is incompatible, that wow. it's not suitable. Right? So they'll give you an out and take it upon themselves to do that. So that's a complicated set of yeah. decisions, too. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, that's fascinating. Let's move on to school choice, because I, I think it's a slightly different case. And, I, and I, when we're done with both these examples, I want to start thinking about some of the allocative uh, and, and welfare implications of these of these different models. So, talk about the problem where uh, parents have to state a preference for right. schools that, for their kids, and what seems pretty straightforward. What's the big deal? You just list the ones that you, that you want your kids to go to. You pick your first choice, your second choice, your third choice, and then you assign people to those schools. Why did that system originally not work very well? Okay. So, so let me take a step back and think about marketplaces in general. And the way I talk about them in the book is to, to serve the market well. Marketplaces have to help make the market thick. They have to deal thick with meaning, meaning lots of bring lots of people together, yeah. which isn't a problem for municipal school districts. There, there's lots of eighth Natural, graders who need yeah. to go to high school. <laughs> um, then they have to deal with congestion. And that's going to be a big deal for, for some of these school districts. That is, how to process all the decisions that have to be made when the market is thick. And then they have to make the marketplace safe to transact in. And what that can involve, one of the forms of safety, is is it safe to indicate what you want? Because if you can't try to get what you want, then it's going to be very hard for you to, for you to get it. And that came up in a number of school districts. You wouldn't think it. I mean, what could be unsafe? You just... Oh. 
Well, so let me tell you about yeah. it. So in New York City, where they had a big congestion problem, they also had a safety problem when they first approached us. The, the way you used to apply to schools in New York City was you would fill out a form, first choice, second choice, third choice. Those forms would be Xeroxed and sent to the schools, and that was your application to the schools. Then the schools would make various decisions, and they processed these through the mails and waited for responses. And that took that was a congestion problem that that was a big problem. But the safety problem was the schools didn't just get your application; they saw your rank order list, and they could see, oh, look at that, you're applying to me, and I'm your second choice. And school principals could and did sometimes decide on a policy that said. So many children are applying to our school that we will only admit children who list us as their first choice. What that meant, of course, was that if you didn't get your first choice, you might lose the opportunity to go to many other schools that you would like to go to as your second or third or fourth choice because you they can only list up. one school as your first choice. And they'd get filled up. And then up. they get filled the up. Timing with, they get filled up too. with first choices. So a school that might have accepted you if you had listed them as your first choice would be filled with people who had listed them as their first choice before you could get to them if you were rejected by your first choice. So it was no longer safe for you to put down as your first choice the school that you simply happened to like first because maybe that one was hard to get into and then you would have this big risk of not getting into a school that you could get into if you listed it first. So you needed to be strategic. You needed to be world. very strategic and your first choice became not a question about what school do you like best but what school, what's the best school that you think you could get into if you list it as your first choice? Which is a very different question. Correct. So what did, what did you do to improve on that? Well, for New York City and then subsequently for other school districts. My and this, we should add, this is an innovation, of course. In, in the old days, you couldn't choose your school at all. You just stuck with the school in your neighborhood. So that's where this problem that's came right. from to begin but with. But New York City already had school choice. Boston already had school choice. Many American cities now have school choice partly because... When we send children to schools in their neighborhood, children who live in poor neighborhoods are often condemned to go to poor schools. And the idea is if, they, if, if school choice can take place, then it makes the schools that aren't working well smaller, which makes them e easier to fix or to close or to co-locate in the same building with schools that are doing better and makes it easier to handle the problem of, of schools that aren't educating students well, which also are often ones that parents don't want their children to go to. So um, what we did in New York and subsequently elsewhere is we helped them build a computerized clearinghouse that uses a deferred acceptance algorithm with children proposing. That, that's a mouthful. But it, it has the effect that it's safe it makes it safe to list what your, what's your true first choice, what's your true second choice, what's your true third choice. And the way it does this is if you, when you use the deferred acceptance algorithm, if you don't get your first choice, you get your second choice with just the same probability that you would have gotten it had you listed it as your first choice. And similarly, if you don't get your second choice, now your chance of getting your third choice is just the same as it would have been if you had listed it as your first choice. And it does that by taking that original power away from the principal to sift through those and cherry-pick the students that listed them first, say. Or, so basically what you're doing is you're marrying off students with schools using a... a so how, can you give us a little bit more of the flavor of how that happens inside the algorithm? I can, but first... Let me say that, that, that what we did, when you say we stopped the uh, principals from cherry-picking, 
that part has to do with no longer allowing principals to see the rank order lists of students. Okay. Right. So you, they're no longer getting your Xeroxed rank order list. They're just being told. You're interested. Joe applied to you. Right. And um, and that prevents them right there from saying, I will only, on my rank order list, I will only rank order students who have listed me first, because they no longer know who listed them first. So how do I, if I'm a, do a, a more basic question, do schools rank students? So in New York City, they do, but in Boston, for example, they don't. So in New York City, many schools, not all, the principal has the right to rank students. And they tend to rank them in somewhat broad classes, but they are concerned with things like reading score and math grades and things like that, which they have. If, if, if the, in New York City, what we organized was school choice for high schools. In a number of other cities, in Boston, in New Orleans, in Denver, um, we, we've, organized, we've helped organize school choice for all grades. But, but in New York City, because it's with high schools, the, the students who are applying, if they've been in the New York City public school system, they have a long record. You know, the, the principals know a lot about them. So, of right. course, they can have preferences over them. Um, in many cities, the principals have no preferences. They don't play a role in admissions. And instead, the, the school district gives priority to, to students based on factors like, do they have an older sibling who attends the same school? Do they live near the school? Things like that. And often, at the end, there are random lottery numbers that are used as tiebreakers. So let me tell you, actually, about, about how Boston used to organize its uh, school system. This was uh, studied by my colleagues uh, Typhoon Sunmez and Attila Abdul And Attila has gone on to be one of the, the giants of, of school choice. Uh, what Boston did was they had these priorities for schools. And they asked you for your first choice, your second choice, your third choice. And then they tried to give as many families as possible their first choice. Seems like a good idea. It seems like a great <laughs> idea. And after, after they, when, when some school had more people applying as, to that school as their first choice than it had capacity, then they used these priorities as tiebreakers. First, we let in the kids who have older siblings. Then we let in some of the kids who live nearby. And then we used the lottery numbers. So that was unsafe. To, that made it unsafe to tell Boston schools, which was your first choice, because if you fail to get your first choice, your second choice might now be filled with people who had listed it as their first choice, even though your child had an older sibling who went to that too school. Late. Yeah, too, too late. Too late. You'd lost your priority by not listing it as your first choice. So you had to be very careful. And maybe you said, although we'd like our younger child to go to an all-day kindergarten, let's send him to the school where his older brother goes, because we can get into that school, and that'll be pretty convenient, even though not our first choice. So it looked to them as if a lot of people were getting their first choices, but in fact, people were adjusting what they claimed was their first choice. It's a fantastic example of how data can be misleading and misinterpreted without taking account of the incentives. Yeah. So the, the way it works now in Boston and in New York is you have some set of choices of schools, in Boston, they've really recently changed what choices people have depending on where they live. But you have some set of choices. You submit first, second, third choice schools. The, in New York, the schools submit preferences for second, third choice kids. In Boston, they just have these priorities for each school. And then what happens in both cases is the algorithm goes through and it has each child apply to his first choice school. And the school looks at all its applications and Sometimes children are ineligible to, to apply to a school that 
they're not accepted. But but all the but if if they can accept everyone, they, they then they don't reject anyone yet. They don't accept anyone immediately, but they don't they don't reject anyone yet. And if there are too many applications, then they then they reject all the ones that are over capacity after order, ordering them in priority order, and they don't reject. They hold on to the applications from the ones they haven't rejected. So this is called a deferred acceptance algorithm because acceptance has only come at the end of the algorithm. So what happens next is that the students who were rejected from their first choice apply to their second choice. And the schools now look at all the all the applications they have, the ones left over that they didn't reject from last period, and the new ones, and they order them in priority order without paying attention to when they applied. So if your child has an older sibling at the school to which you now apply as your second choice, you'll go right to the top of the list because that's the top priority. And so you won't have lost your chance of going to that school. And they now, the school may now have to reject some other people because right. there are new people at the top of the list. And those people apply to their next choice school that they haven't yet applied to. And the schools, again, order everyone in priority order without paying attention to when they applied in the algorithm. This is all happening at the same time. And that continues until no one makes any new applications, at which point the schools accept the children whose offers they haven't rejected, whose applications they haven't rejected. And that's the deferred acceptance algorithm. So this is rather you know, remarkable. Um, I assume that when it was first proposed, there were bureaucrats who didn't like it because for a whole bunch of reasons. But it must have taken some time to get parents to trust it. Because you can say, you put maybe at the time you, I don't know whether you were at Pittsburgh or Harvard or Stanford, but. I was at Harvard at that time. Okay, which is good, kind of. It's like saying, okay, I know this sounds complicated, but it's going to be okay for you to tell the truth. I know you shouldn't have before and you didn't, but it's going to be okay because a Harvard professor says, it's going to be fine. Uh, how, were there political issues like that that came up along There the were way? certainly political issues. We spent a lot of time explaining it. We went to public meetings. Um, <laughs> Must have been challenging. And, and I think the school districts were interested for different reasons. In New York, I think the big attraction was not merely the safety, but the fact that it dealt with congestion. In New York, they have almost 90,000 kids going into ninth grade each year. And they had been handling this process through the mails. So after the, stu the schools made their admissions decisions, they would forward them to the Department of Education, which would send out letters saying to, to about 17,000 students who had multiple admissions, uh, saying, you know, you were admitted to three high schools, choose the one you want and get back to us. And when they got back to them, they would be able to make new offers, things like that. They only had time for three rounds of letters. And they left about 30,000 students unmatched right before the beginning of school. And those students had to be administratively assigned to schools over which they hadn't expressed any preferences at all. So it was a very congested Hard process. Fun. Yeah, really unpleasant. So yeah. people were very happy. So they were glad to have that. it computerized yeah. and work fast, you know, have, have the preferences asked for in advance so you didn't have to wait for the mails to go back and forth. So that was, I think, a, a big advantage. And the first year in New York that they used this computerized algorithm that we, we helped them build, instead of having 30,000 unassigned students who had to be administratively assigned, they only had 3,000. So it was a big, a, big a, a big improvement. But then one reason why it's a successful system is that it does have these good incentive properties. And indeed, in New York City, where principals have a very active role in, in school choice, 
principals had been contriving to hold places off the market, not not reveal their full capacity, saying that some classrooms were under renovation and things like that. And then they would discover new places just around the time that that school was about to start, and they would they would admit students what was called over the counter. Uh, so there were other ways to get into schools than to go through the official process. Yeah. But as this new process started to work, and it had good incentives for both families and for school principals, those places started to come back into the system as as principals saw that it was working very well and that you couldn't get students you preferred by by withholding the places. So so that actually effectively increased the number of good school places that could be allocated in, in New York. Um, and in Boston, they were somewhat similar effects, although, uh, although school choice is a very political issue that, that cities tamper with a little bit Tinker with is the word I want uh, year by year because the loosely speaking school choice divides cities into two political parties. The people who live near good schools are the walk to school party, and the people who live near bad schools are the school choice party. Yeah. And the question is how to allocate the the legitimate concerns and interests of these of these people and the the, the various school districts that we've worked with often adjust those things year to year based on what happened in the previous year and which kids are going to which schools. Well, one of the things, let's turn to some of the broader issues that these kind of methods bring up. Um, I I found myself thinking a lot while I was reading your book about how such markets might allocate spaces or matches if prices were used. And we understand there are issues about prices we might be uncomfortable with. As you say, sometimes poor people might be disadvantaged. We usually respond to that as economists. We say, well, let's give people vouchers. In this case, uh, we, we, a lot of people do literally give people vouchers to help them compete, say, for, for school spaces in private schools. Um, but what's missing, it seems to me, and, and I'm curious, you, didn't talk about the, you did not talk about this in the book, Historically, in the economics literature, historically meaning, I guess it depends how far you want to go back, but people talk about the role that, that prices play as signals. They signal quality, they signal shortages, they signal surpluses. When we're in these markets where design, an algorithm like we're talking about, is substituting for prices, what do we lose? I, I see what we get. We often get an improvement over the situation that without prices. But if we'd gone to a market with prices uh, and maybe some adjustments of a different kind, would we get a different – how different might the allocation be? Have you thought about this much? Absolutely. And, and remember, there are lots of markets you – know, with, with public schools, we don't allow prices to play any role at all, nor do we with kidneys. But for college admissions, prices play a big role. Colleges sure. adjust their tuition very freely. Yep. However, they don't adjust the tuition so that supply equals demand. Correct. So – in matching markets, prices work differently than in commodity markets, and that's one of the things that the work that the book is about. And other kinds of signals uh, have to be sent, not just price signals. But but let me point out that market design is important, even in getting price signals to do the work that they should be doing in commodity markets. So at so I have a, a student at the University of Chicago, a former student named Eric Budish, who's been studying high speed trading, algorithmic trading in uh, in financial markets. And lots of money is spent on making 
data flow very fast between the New York Stock Exchange and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. So billions of dollars a year have been spent on very fast transmission lines because both of those markets, the New York Stock Exchange and the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, are run by are, are designed to run by continuous double auctions, which means that the first person to take a trade gets it. And right now, the, the time for a price signal to go from New York to Chicago is about eight milliseconds. And it takes you hundreds of milliseconds to blink your eyes. And as a result, competition by speed has to some extent displaced competition for price because the markets become very thin at the millisecond level. Even markets that have hundreds of trades a minute for things like Standard & Poor's 500 bundles. When you look at millisecond by millisecond, many milliseconds can go by with, with no <laughs> trades. Yeah. And what Eric and his colleagues have proposed is that it might restore some price competition rather than speed competition to have call markets run once a second, for example, so that, that all the bids and asks that accumulated in a, in a whole second would be accumulated and, and traded at the price at which supply equal demand. And that would give the trades to the person who offered the best price rather than to the one who, who came at the earliest millisecond. So, so thinking about how markets work doesn't necessarily interfere with, with competition by price to send price signals uh, because playing by the rules and doing things that are allowed with the current markets, people are substituting one kind of competition for another. Now, let me let me come back to the school example, though, because I think just realized something I hadn't thought of before. Um, normally, we would say that price signals would send uh, information about what are the better schools than than others, right? We would say, in, in theory, private schools, for example, that have the best quality can charge more than private schools that have lower quality. In theory, that could be the entire education market. We don't have that. We have this whole sector called the public sector with no prices. And that, as a result, as we all know, there are schools that persist that are awful. In the walk-to-school world, for sure. And even in the world that you're talking about with public with school choice, because uh, they still put stick kids at the end in some of those schools that are less desirable, even when people tell their, their full choice. What, what, what don'ts on me, though, is that we could use the votes that people give in those preferences to make decisions about closing schools. We just choose not to so much, right? So the market has a brutal calculus, which says you don't cover your costs after a while, you're not going to make it. The public sector, that cost can be mitigated through taxation, but if we chose to, we could use those preferences that people give to close bad schools. We just... No, no. Well, now that... There are a number of schools that have systems of school choice that make it safe for families to reveal their true preferences. They are starting to use them. Uh, so schools that no one wants to go to as their first choice, that's a sign that, uh, that they may not be such good schools. And it, before, when it wasn't safe to put down your true first choice, that there might not be any schools like that. It might be that if you didn't get the bad school in your neighborhood, you would get a bad school far from your neighborhood. Right. And so you would that say your that... your sister never went to. Right. So, <laughs> so, so you would say that the bad school in your neighborhood was your first choice. Yeah. But now, uh, certainly in New York City, I know that that's, that kind of preference information has played a role in the decision to close some schools. 
Uh, yeah, that's I guess that's some encouragement. Uh, it's um, it's slightly embarrassing that we, we seem to not be able to have an episode of Econ Talk without mentioning Uber, and you've already mentioned it. So uh, uh, there are a lot of very creative things going on in, in markets right now that weren't there ten years ago. Uber, Airbnb. These are essentially private matching yes. uh, uh, algorithms. Uh, you mentioned some possibilities that might be on the horizon. Do you want to speculate a little bit about what might be coming? For example, you mentioned that you might, in your, if you're out of your house during the day, your Wi-Fi is very uncongested, and there's some people working on trying to uh, rent out your Wi-Fi while you're gone. Uh, are there others right. you can talk about? It well, may be involved in, in, yeah. in so, a proprietary so, way. In some no, no, I, I think that's a good one. I did mention in the book there's a company called Bandwidth X yeah. that's trying to make a market for the unused Wi-Fi that you should be able to access it on your cell phone. And the idea, the attraction of this for your cell phone provider is it would help them smooth out when they need to build new microwave towers yeah. and, and things like that. So it would make their capital costs uh, more bearable. Um, and, of course, the, the individual handshake as you drive through a city and, and Wi-Fi connections flicker on and off is not something you can negotiate with your phone, but it's something that Comcast can negotiate with AT&T and other providers, and, and Bandwidth X proposes to facilitate that marketplace. Uh, because its costs might be different at different times of day. When, when you're home using your Wi-Fi, you, you might not want uh, to make it available for, for me driving by in my car or, or walking by uh, with my cell phone. Um, so that's one kind of uh, market that we might see more of. Another one I think that I mentioned is restaurant reservations. Um, right now, restaurants, fancy restaurants that, that might take a long time for you to get a reservation, charge you for your meal but not for your reservation. And, and, and that creates some congestion in that market. When you buy a ticket for a hard-to-get Broadway show, if you, if you later can't go to the show, you bought the ticket two months in advance and now a wedding has come up, uh, you can give your ticket to someone else or sell it. But you can't do that with a restaurant reservation. And some restaurants are starting to think that maybe it would facilitate their market to, to change the way they give reservations, possibly charging separately for the reservation than for the meal, or possibly just making the whole package transferable. So I think we're beginning to see some um, exploration of that. What's fascinating to me is how the... I'm sure a lot of restaurants would be uneasy about that. Reputationally, they might struggle with it. Of course, if it's a high-demand restaurant, maybe people would be thrilled to be able to at least get a reservation of any kind. So one of the things that fascinates me about these innovations is the, how people respond to them emotionally. In, you know, in, in some people respond very negatively and some very positively. It depends. It's going to change, obviously. I like to imagine that, that one of the first discussions of repugnant transactions may have played out over a campfire back before the beginning of history when, when some hunter came home with a rabbit and his spouse said to him, just one rabbit? And he said, no, no, actually I caught two, but, but then I met this guy from across the hill who, who hadn't caught any, and he, he gave me this arrowhead that'll save me a full day's work, and I gave him one of the rabbits. And you can imagine that, you know, his... Uh, his spouse might not think that was a great trade. You know, you gave, you gave him our food for a stone. You know, how about if how about if 
someone in our I, family didn't catch a rabbit. I thought you were going to say, you killed a rabbit? <laughs> how, how could you? They're so cute. Anyway, yeah. uh, we're almost out of time. I want to close with, um, with, a, with a question about toward the end of the... We didn't get much into repugnance. I'm glad you touched on it, but I want to get on to close with something else, which is uh, economist as engineer. So on this uh, program, I tend to be a big defender of Hayek's... Uh, and in general, his quote, the curious task of economics is to illustrate to men how little we really know about we, what we imagine we can design, what they know about what they can imagine they can, they can design. And then you quote Hayek at the end of the book. Uh, as we're sitting here, Alvin's taking, picking up his copy and looking for his Hayek reference. It's about three pages from the end. Um, so you have been very successful and, and in, in a very helpful way in these markets that for a variety of reasons don't don't work very well. Uh, again, some of them are, don't work well because of nature. There's just a timing issue or because of legal precedent. Do you ever have any unease about your role as economist, as engineer, that, that there are um, dangers to what you do, that you might be forestalling other innovations that would come along if we did not, say, impose a solution from the top down? Do you ever have unease about the consequences of, say, an allocation that you're designing? rather than letting it emerge? Well, uh, I think that economists have to approach their role as engineers with great humility. There's a lot we don't understand. Economics is still an early science. But let me read you the quote from Hayek that I included in my book. This is a quote from his, uh, his free market manifesto, The Road to Serfdom. And he wrote, there is, in particular, all the difference between deliberately creating a system within which competition will work as beneficially as possible and passively accepting institutions as they are. So that was Hayek. He understood that what makes a market free is that it has rules that allow it to work freely. And one of the metaphors I use in the book is, is of a wheel that can rotate freely. It's not rotating in a vacuum. It has an axle and it has well-oiled bearings. And... Over time, you know, people have been designing markets for millennia, and often the, the process of trial and error leads to better and better markets, but it can be a lengthy process of trial and error. And as we better understand what is required for marketplaces to help markets work freely, we can sometimes intervene. And you said top-down, but, but earlier you talked about Uber and Airbnb. Those are marketplaces that are not top-down. Correct. People have been designing marketplaces forever. It's what we do. My guest today has been Alvin Roth. Alvin, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.